0: Pints with Jack, Season 4, Episode 96 C.S. Lewis and Pulp Fiction After Hours with Rod Bennett Welcome everyone. We're now only a few weeks away from wrapping up Season 4, where we work through the Screwtape Letters, Screwtape Proposes a Toast, and the Silver Chair. And today we're talking to Rod Bennett. Rod Bennett is the author of Four Witnesses, The Early Church in Our Own Words, and it's widely considered to be a modern classic of apologetics continuously in print for the last 20 years. He's also a familiar voice of media outlets such as Relevant Radio and on popular programs like Catholic Answers Live and Marcus Grody's Journey Home. His other books include The Apostasy That Wasn't, Scripture Wars, and a science fiction novel, The Christus Experiment. Rod lives in the great smoky mountains of Tennessee with his wife of 30 years, Dorothy. Rod Bennett, welcome to Pies for Jack.
1: Uh, It's very, very nice to be here. I've enjoyed the show and was very happy to get your invitation.
0: Well, I was actually trying to think back and remember how exactly we met. I I think we first became friends on Facebook after I read one of your books. Uh, And then I tried unsuccessfully to get Sophia Press to let me do the audio reading for your book, Bad Shepherds. Uh, But then my wife and I met you at a conference. Does, Does that sound about right?
1: That sounds right. Yeah, it was it was nice to get to meet you in person. Uh yeah, it's a shame that uh that audiobook didn't happen
0: too. Ah. Uh, it's it's sometimes the way things happen. Uh, I'm I'm okay. I'm over it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, now, after we met at that conference, you sent me some notes of a talk that you gave about CS Lewis. And pretty much ever since then, I've been pestering you to come on the show to talk about it. So, I want to get on to that, but first of all, we've got to do a couple of standard episode segments. We've first of all got our quote of the week, which is from Lewis's essay on science fiction. Lewis wrote, Science fiction is a literary province I used to visit fairly often. I noticed that whenever critics said anything about it, they betrayed great ignorance. Good choice. <laughs> Thank you. And for the drink of the week, today we're talking about something that a lot of people wouldn't think about C.S. Lewis and his affection for Pulp Fiction. So I thought I would drink something that not a lot of people might know about me, because I don't just drink English tea. So today I am drinking a very nice green tea uh, that I bought years ago in Seattle. Rod, what are you drinking?
1: Well, yes, you you mentioned. I thought about suggesting uh, what's the local drink around here, which has been made since the middle of the 18th century, and that is Homemade sour mash, moonshine whiskey. <laughs> yeah. uh, my grandfather made it on the very farm from which I'm speaking. I've been, uh, We've been on this property for nearly 200 years ourselves. Dang. But it is a little early in the day for, for that sort of thing, even for me. So <laughs> I have opted instead for a cup of Maxwell House coffee. Maxwell House coffee was named for the original Maxwell House Hotel in Nashville, where it was first served. So I thought this would be another great Tennessee original.
0: Wonderful. Well, cheers. Cheers. Now, I gave a brief introduction to you at the start of the episode, but would you mind filling in some of the details uh, for the listeners about your own personal history?
1: Well, let's see. Uh, My first book was uh, Four Witnesses, published about 20 years ago. But before that, I edited a magazine called Wonder, which was very much inspired by the uh, Legacy of C.S. Lewis. It's a magazine about film and specifically fantastic films, science fiction, uh, fantasy, horror films, and things of that type. Media definitely took a uh, uh, Christian approach, but uh, inspired by Lewis's quote where he said that we needed fewer books about Christianity and more books about other subjects with the uh, Christianity latent. And uh, so that was the spirit of Wonder Magazine and maybe the thing that's most pertinent to. uh, to today's discussion, so yeah. And since then, I've been writing books. Been I'm on my ninth right now, trying to finish it up. But uh, uh, but yeah, that's 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 the long and short of it. Wonderful.
0: Well, after what you and I met at that conference, as I said earlier, you sent me some notes for a talk you once gave on C.S. Lewis. And would you mind just setting the scene? Because you told me a little bit about the setting, and it it seemed pretty wild. This big christian rock festival on an independence day weekend
1: that's right yeah there used to be a very large uh outdoor festival sort of a, a christian woodstock uh and a little edgier on the end edge of uh christian rock uh a bit less uh mainstream than the usual uh contemporary christian pop was heavy heavy rock bands so it was pretty interesting it's not normally my cup of tea as it were but uh I received, because of Wonder Magazine, this nice invitation to come and participate in uh, something that they were trying out, and that was uh, speaker venues. There were 30,000 attendees at this thing, so it was an enormous crowd, and they wanted to set up some tents uh, with talks and seminar sessions and other things on various topics of interest, and one of these tents was came to be called the Imaginarium, <laughs> where, we, uh, where we showed old science fiction movies and other talked about geek stuff, including the inklings from the Christian angle. And, uh, it was, uh, it was kind of magical in spite of the, uh, rough conditions, which I suppose the more people know about the, about Woodstock, the more they know that the challenges of the rough conditions are, are part of the charm. So if you can imagine me talking about Lewis and his connection to science fiction, uh, in a, under a big circus town on the Illinois prairie with temp- temperatures about 90 degrees, that'll give you the basic idea of where, these, uh, where this session was originally
0: done. Your description of this kind of reminds me of a conference that, I, well, it was a yearly event. It was called Greenbelt. It was where, where I lived in England near Cheltenham. And it was, a, it was a similar kind of thing. It was like an arts and music. And um, yes, I remember sitting in lots of swelteringly hot tents, because <laughs> despite popular opinion, it can occasionally get hot in England. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you sent me some photos of, of this event, and I'll be sure to include them in the show notes so people can get an idea of uh, of what this and what the Imaginarium was like. Well, that
1: should be fun. <laughs> uh,
0: but what about the talk itself? Uh, what did you say?
1: Well, let me give you the gist of what started it all off. I made uh, on a – now, this was some years ago. I gave this talk originally in 2003 – And the uh, event that occasioned the talk happened a few years before that. So we're talking about the early days of the Internet, I suppose. But on a C.S. Lewis uh, Internet board that I uh, frequented at that time, uh, I made, you know, I mean, we're just getting used to the idea uh, that the Internet it's a big invitation for everybody, so you never know who you're going to get. No, no, con- no statement is non-controversial on the Internet. You know? <laughs> There's somebody that's going to find it deeply, deeply controverted. So uh, uh, I made what seemed to me a comment that I thought was rather obvious at the time, and that was that C.S. Lewis was heavily influenced by early experiences with what a lot of people would call trashy literature. American science fiction magazines like Amazing Stories, Astounding Science Fiction, things like that. Jungle adventure books, you know, even children's books that uh, uh, that a lot of people, uh, you know, thought were should have been left in the nursery. And, I, you know, I thought this was a fairly non-controversial statement. But, of course, the reaction was heresy. <laughs> uh, I was a I, as people not just one person, one person in particular, but several people just came on with this tone of how dare I accuse uh, a, a fellow of Modlin College of being anything but the perfect model of Oxford literary propriety, you know? <laughs> and uh, a, a lot of people, I think they're, one of their favorite things about C.S. Lewis is that he's a Christian with credentials, so to speak. But uh, uh, But when I made this statement, the idea wasn't just doubted it. it was interesting that it was something to take offense at it, it's almost as if i had attributed some kind of moral fault to cs lewis and so i had to uh i had to do a little research to set about making my case and i ended up working on it for quite a while and and so i thought maybe i might try to repeat that feet for any doubters that might be present today.
0: <laughs> it reminds me of the meme of a guy working at his laptop, and his wife says, "Come to bed, honey." He says, "Sorry, can't yet." There are people on the internet who are wrong.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Well, that's right. Yeah. So uh, as it as it happens, Lewis himself did a good deal of thinking on this problem. In fact, he wrote a, a whole book about it called "An Experiment in Criticism." And I think it was his own background in trashy, so to speak, literature that motivated the writing of it, because the sorts of questions that he asked were things like, what do we mean when we attach a moral value to culture? What do we mean by good literature and trash, good taste and bad taste? Is there any such thing as a good, bad book? How about a bad, good book? (laughs) Well, for for Lewis, these were more than just academic questions because he was living in a university surrounded by the gatekeepers of culture for his society, and he was under a great pressure to simply outgrow his formative experiences with the type of pulp fiction that I'm talking about. And I think he almost did it. I'm going to show that he was pretty deeply steeped in the early two decades or so of science fiction, but science fiction at this time, especially this kind of American uh, science fiction in pulp magazines with bug-eyed monsters on the covers and stuff, was pretty much on the same level with pornography to most of the people that he was surrounded with. In fact, I think pornography might have been more acceptable, (laughs) provided that it was lofty and high-minded like D.H. Lawrence and things of that type. So I, I think it was more than just career pressure. Uh, peer pressure for Lewis. I think that his tastes actually had the power to damage his career. And uh, it took some some courage to speak up in the way that he did, because it, it was uh, the sort of thing that would get you in trouble in his situation. I think the fact that he didn't just go ahead and cave into this is a tribute maybe to his own stubbornness, but maybe also to the kind of power of the supposed trash that he had uh, been formed by. And uh, so these issues seem very interesting to me because uh, one of the things that got me to read C.S. Lewis, who reconverted me to Christianity after a uh, loss of a childhood faith, happened because here was a Christian who wrote fantasy and science fiction these were things that i was deeply interested in and i had always seen a kind of a hard divide between the two and here comes this highly recommended uh, christian apologist who thought that science fiction and fantasy were okay so that was uh, so it's important to me and personal to me so that's one of the reasons that i did the kind of uh, digging into it that uh, that i did so i thought those these would be good issues to explore at the festival and I think there's still some facts in my notes here that uh, that all of your listeners may not be aware of. I think it'd be fun to go back over them.
0: Well, before we proceed on that, I did just want to clarify one term, because for a lot of people, the term Pulp Fiction, the only thing that they can think of is the Quentin Tarantino movie.
1: Oh, goodness, yeah. <laughs> no, it was already a coined phrase by that time.
0: So what exactly was Pulp Fiction?
1: Well, the pulp is the cheap paper that it was made of, that this kind of of literature was made on. In the days before TV or even before radio was completely adopted everywhere, written literary fiction, short stories for fun and entertainment, were much more common than they are now. The ordinary newsstand was covered with magazines of fictions, short stories and novels published in a uh, Magazine form to be read on the train the way a newspaper is on, on, uh, you know, just that kind of level of, uh, seriousness. Uh, and they were printed on cheap paper. So the cheapest paper that was possible was called pulp. And in fact, one of the, it was just a step up from raw wood pulp that you get in the process of making better paper so uh it uh and nowadays a problem with this kind of literature it has to be carefully preserved because the paper was so bad that these magazines will fall apart in your hands these days quentin tarantino was referencing the kind of crime fiction crime and uh and you know lurid kind of uh, true crime and murder stories and things of this type were a part of pulp fiction but they weren't all of it. The, the the jungle tales that we spoke about, Tarzan originally appeared in in pulp fiction. Uh, there were, uh, but so did all the other stories of Edgar Rice Burroughs, which were science fiction. And eventually, by the late 1920s, the first magazines dedicated solely to science fiction started to appear, and it was an important landmark in the uh, the origins of that genre. But Pulp Fiction included just about every kind of romance story, anything that you could think of that would be uh, westerns, all of that. So that's what was originally meant by the term Pulp Fiction before uh, it got so closely associated with uh, Quentin Tarantino.
0: <laughs> okay. Fellow East Tennessean,
1: by the way. Quentin Tarantino grew up, or was lived as a kid here in Knoxville, Tennessee, not far from where I live. So. <laughs> ah,
0: didn't know that.
1: But yeah, no, it's not not that kind of Pulp Fiction.
0: Okay. So, Rod, what makes you think that C.S. Lewis really loved Pulp Fiction, and why do you think that it had such a big impact on him? What, what proof can you give people that doubt this?
1: Well, you, you go back and you look at his writings pretty in-depth, which I was ready to do because I was hungry. This was the area where he and I were kin, as it were, even before... We were kin as, as Christians. We were uh Ken as people who, who uh, appreciated these types of stories. So uh, I think you can go back, and if you do what I did, you go back and look carefully for references to this sort of stuff in his writing. You begin to see it pretty clearly. So rather than just make that assertion, let me go over some of this. Lewis mentions that one of his very first stories that he wrote when he was just a small child was called To Mars and Back. <laughs> so there you go. His, he, he, his earliest uh, earliest uh, written piece, according to his own account, was A, a Trip to Mars. Mm. But he also gives, uh, you know, Lewis was born in, what, 98? And he uh, began, H. Ryder Haggard and H.G. Wells began publishing their kind of uh, uh, lurid-type sci-fi and adventure stories and stuff uh, in the next decade, say, 1908 to 1910 or so, or so the 19, up to World War Two, World War I, sorry. And both of those writers Lewis mentions as being very uh, central to his uh, early formative experiences. Uh, he had an uncle who, uh, who taught him science and gave him what he called his intellectual background for the reading of H.G. Wells. But when the HDL science fiction stories came along, we have Lewis's own uh, word that he gobbled them up. Uh, just a quote. The idea of outer other planets exercised upon me then a peculiar, heady attraction, which was quite different from any of my other literary interests. Uh, joy, in the technical sense, never darted from Mars or the moon. This was something coarser and stronger. The interest, when the fit was upon me, was ravenous like a lust. This particular coarse strength I've come to accept as a mark that the interest which has it is psychological, not spiritual. Behind such a fierce tang there lurks, I suspect, a psychoanalytical explanation. I may perhaps add that my own planetary romances have not been so much the gratification of that fierce curiosity as its exorcism. The exorcism worked by reconciling it with or subjecting it to the other more elusive and more genuinely imaginative impulse. That the ordinary interest in fiction is an affair for psychoanalysts is borne out by the fact that all who like it, like it thus ravenously, and equally by the fact that those who do not are often nauseated by it. The repulsion of the one sort has the same coarse strength as the fascinated interest of the other, and is equally telltale. This connection of science fiction in its early days with with atheism and be, its being the opposite of uh, spiritual romance, spiritual uh, the the whole spiritual outlook of life, is pretty much true of of the early days of science fiction, and uh, Wells himself certainly uh, was you know be, believed himself to be preaching some version of that creed, and most of the early uh, most of the early devotees of it were certainly people who were using science fiction as a medium to get across the new scientific, as they would have called it, uh, worldview. Uh, Lewis talks about reading H.G. Wells, and uh, he he mentions in passing that it was an interest that he was able to talk about with an acquaintance he knew, who ironically was a passionate Newmanite devotee of heart of John Henry Newman and the uh, Tractarian school of Anglicanism. But uh, he says that he thought that Lewis was characterized by a lack of charm, but it, that he had other qualities as important, if less delightful. <laughs> In Wells, it seems to me, he wrote, that one has the first class pure fantasy and third class didacticism. didacticism. Uh, I object to his novels with a purpose, not because they have a purpose, but because I think them bad. Just as I object to the preaching passages in Thackeray, not because I dislike sermons, but because I dislike bad sermons. (laughs)
0: So,
1: pretty good. Um,
0: Just a question about sources here. So, the the long section where you quoted about Lewis's childhood reading of Wells and his own planetary romances—that was from *Surprised by Joy*, his autobiography. I think so.
1: I think that's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm sorry. If I were writing this for publication instead of to give inside a circus tent (laughs) to rock and roll fans, I would have footnoted everything carefully, but uh, I'd have to go back and do all the work over again if I uh, were to try to do it now.
0: Not a problem. I just like to be able to point people to roughly where they should go if they want to read more about this sort of stuff.
1: I may be able to do it roughly. Okay, that's good. (laughs) Uh, many people probably who've read the Space Trilogy know that a, la- a big influence on the writing of that trilogy was, trilogy was a book called Voyage to Arcturus by David Lindsay. That book was written in 1920, so right about the period that Lewis, as the young teenager, is beginning to uh, gobble this stuff up. But uh, Lewis does not seem to have discovered that book until quite a bit later. So we'll come back to that in a, in a few moments. Uh April of 1926 is an important date. That's the date of the first issue of Amazing Stories, which was published in America, but also there was a British edition. The Amazing Stories, the first science fiction, uh, the first periodical devoted purely to science fiction. And I'll give my evidence in a moment that Lewis uh, was familiar with this and and, uh, and no, knew about it very well. Uh, Lewis certainly, and I'll concede this, Point. He certainly rates most of these early efforts as pretty awful, uh, and interestingly, most of today's science fiction critics agree. Uh, most of the stories were uh, might just have played just as well as a western or as a, uh, uh, a cops and robbers story, with uh, with aliens standing in for the robbers and and spacemen for the cops. But Lewis took care. To show that he could tell the good ones from the bad. Hmm. And here's an inter- this is a very interesting uh, a quote. In the inferior romances, such as the American magazines of scientific fiction, uh, so, excuse me, such as the American magazines of scientific fiction supply, we often come across a really suggestive idea. But the author has no expedient for keeping the story on the move except for that of putting his hero into violent danger. In the hurry and scurry of his escapes, the poetry of the basic idea is lost. In a much milder degree, I think this happened to Wells himself in War of the Worlds. Now, that's an interesting quote in and of itself, but one of the best proofs for what I'm saying here is that he uses this portmanteau word, scientific fiction, which proves, I believe, that, that he was along for the ride right from the start. Mm-hmm. That creation of that ungainly term, scientific fiction, trying to obviously looking for it. This was before the term science fiction had been coined. So the editor of uh, Amazing Stories was looking for a uh, looking for a label. And the editor, Hugo Gernsback, invented this word scientific fiction, where he mashed scientific and fiction together. But the interesting thing is that term, probably because it's impossible to pronounce <laughs> in any received way, uh, was used almost solely by his publications so the gernsback science fiction magazines including amazing stories so full of bad science fiction stories even by today's standards lewis was steeped enough in it that he he seems to have forgotten that uh that term science fiction didn't really catch on and that by the time he wrote this quote in the 50s uh he uh was using a term that <laughs> that people hadn't used for 20 years already Isaac Asimov, for instance, wrote this. He uh, Obviously, good science fiction credentials. In 1925, Hugo Gernsback mailed thousands of circulars to of his magazine, excuse me, circulars to his subscribers of his magazines, announcing that he was about to launch a new magazine dealing with the worlds of tomorrow, interplanetary travel, scientific invention in the tradition of Jules Verne and H.G. Wells. To create a new name for the magazine, Gernsback contracted the term scientific fiction into scientific fiction and projected that as the title of the publication so uh, he goes on but basically it didn't catch on but it's interesting that Lewis uses it science fiction started getting better in the late 1930s Asimov says this about that era cosmic scale hard SF began in the 1930s which is anchored in Last and First Man written in 1930 by Olaf Stapledon the brilliant Cambridge professor of philosophy, who in his epic two billion year sweep was the direct acknowledged influence on the king of hard SF, Arthur C. Clarke. Interestingly, Lewis's idea for the floating islands of Paralandra comes from this book, Last and First Man, written in 1930. So right in the era where he was deeply involved in this stuff by his own account. Here's what he says. What immediate, and keep in mind, this is, a letter that Lewis wrote December 28, 1938. So this is not long after Out of the Silent Planet appeared. I'm not sure who he was writing to here. What immediately spurred me to write Out of the Silent Planet was Olaf Stapleton's Last and First Man and an essay in J.B.S. Haldane's Possible Worlds, 1927, both of which seem to have the desperately immoral outlook which I tried to pillory in Weston. I like the whole interplanetary idea as a mythology and simply wish to conquer, for my own Christian point of view, what has always hitherto been used by the opposite side. I think Wells's First Men on the Moon is the best sort of this, of this sort that I have read. Other connections to Stapledon In his book that we've been talking about here, Last and First Men, uh, there's a group of scientists who try to con- construct a bodiless brain which will dominate them. The book tells the history of man over the next two billion years, including migrations to Venus and Neptune. Stapleton describes the religions characterizing each period and believes that man might be the spark destined to revitalize the cosmos. So the bodiless brain being constructed by scientists, who would be the, you know, the great technocrat, uh, is, definitely makes a reappearance in Lewis's that hideous strength. Also, the idea of Weston's uh, life force is is here in Stapleton. Also, so uh, at any rate, uh, Haldane, uh, in his books, was took the idea that humanity could control its own evolution, but only that some men would take charge of the destiny of others, which was the only way of doing it. So, the trilogy, the space trilogy, of course, attacks counterattacks all of these ideas. Something that's really interesting to me is that Lewis, converted in 1931, the year after Stapleton's book, doesn't come back to the genre until he became a Christian himself. So it's very interesting to me that this is the sort of thing that he returns to immediately after his conversion, Mm. rather than a religious books and stuff. Uh, here's some notes from from uh, various sources. In January of 1932, he wrote this: "Most of my recent reading before term has been of a rather simple and boyish kind. I reread The People of the Mist, a tip-top yarn of the sort. If someone would start reissuing all Rider Haggard at a shilling a volume, I would get them all as a permanent fallback for purely recreational reading." 1933. This is, uh, this is a gem for the, uh, film, film buff like me. Uh, Lewis's friend, Roger Lancelin Green records that, uh, he and Lewis went and saw the original King Kong when it first came out. And he describes that Lewis enjoyed it because of its Haggard haggardish flavor. I would certainly like to know more about that. It's one of my very favorite movies and, uh, it, the idea of Lewis, uh, and Roger Larson Greed sitting in the theater and watching King Kong
0: <laughs>
1: would love to have been there.
0: <laughs> I, I don't think he'd have liked the remake. Just just, just one man's opinion. Uh, I, don't
1: like, I don't like any of the remakes. So. Oh, well, maybe a little bit. <laughs> anyway, another subject for a different day. Um, speaking of Lewis on film in general, he says, I like some science fiction, some romance of high adventure, but I can't take, holding his nose, drama. So <laughs> Lewis's taste in, in movies seem to have been pretty close to mine. So.
0: <laughs> Speaking of both science fiction and movies, it's crossed my mind more than a couple of times over the last few months. I wonder what Lewis would have thought of Dune, both the books. I think that came out just a couple of years after Lewis died by Frank Herbert. And they're going to try yet again to try and put it on the screen sometime this year.
1: Right. That sounds very interesting.
0: Yeah, I want. I I do wonder what he would have thought about it, because I I love it. So I therefore project my opinions onto him.
1: <laughs> well, that that's interesting that you should bring that up because that's very much related. Uh, Dune is, I think, the first major. I think a, a lot of its success and a lot of its uh, enduring popularity is due to the fact that it to to at least some degree took Lord of the Rings for its model. In other words, the, the science fiction up to that point had been so markedly atheist that when uh when Herbert uh read Lord of the Rings, he said, Well, okay, this is, you know, a world where uh, uh, an invented religion plays a major major part, especially in in the uh connected works like the Silmarillion and other other of uh Tolkien's backstory, mm-hmm. uh, he not only created the most intensely, realistically ma- imagined, not realist, that's the wrong word, a thoroughly imagined world and society and culture, he also, talk, Professor Tolkien, invented uh, a religion for that world. And uh, I think this inspired, I think there's evidence to, in some of his own quotes to suggest that Herbert said, well, why don't we do this in a pure science fiction? So, uh, the Lord of the Rings, I think, inspired the friendly tone that, uh, at least the original Dune takes towards, uh, or at least respectful tone <laughs> that it takes towards religion in, uh, the world of Dune and set about imagining it with a similar level of detail, uh, something that, that written SF had really never attempted. Most of the, uh, most of the early SF writers were so uh, thoroughly propagandists for their uh, atheist outlook that they couldn't be bothered to pay that close attention to religion. So, At any rate, this is maybe, again, a subject for another episode, but uh, yeah, absolutely you're right to to notice that there's a connection here, and I think that, uh, in answer to your question, I think Dune would have made a, an impression on Lewis, because uh, has many of the qualities that he loves so much in about uh, Lord of the Rings.
0: Oh, that makes me really happy. <laughs> on all <old> points <laughs> the connection to the Lord of the Rings and the fact you agree with me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, when people agree with me, it makes me happy too, so I can relate. <laughs> um, interesting. Uh, in 1934, also early in his Christian walk, before he had started writing apologetics or anything along those lines, uh, He started doing research for the lectures that became the book The Discarded Image. And uh, this also led to The Allegory of Love, and then I think those books led to, at least partially, to Out of the Silent Planet, the the themes involved. Lewis had a quote on this subject. He said, I hope at the very least to change the conception of space to that of heaven for at least 1% of my readers. And you remember in *Out of the Silent Planet*, you know the, the the space between the worlds is golden and fills people with happiness rather than dread. So, uh, very uh, very much the opposite of the normal horror of the void that was such a, uh, a common theme in science fiction. Hmm. So, uh, Lewis, by the way, started writing *Out of the Silent Planet* early in 1937, finished it in September of that year, and the book really is almost an answer to Wells's First Men in the Moon, a book that Lewis liked very much, by the way. Similarities here. Uh, uh, there's a chance meeting at the beginning with an eccentric scientist like Kavor. The narrator becomes educated to the social structures of the inhabitants, uh, the Selenites and the Hrasa. And then the book ends with a whole little section of Kavor's first-person letters, which is quite similar to the... Uh, Postscript that Ransom writes out that that comes that's attached to the end of out of the silent planet. So it's uh, I, I think he was pretty consciously answering Wells. Hmm. Another quote or two from uh, uh, from Lewis on this writing of this period. He said, "What set me about writing the book was the discovery that a pupil of mine took all that dream of interplanetary colonization quite seriously, and the realization that thousands of people in one way or the other depend on some hope." of perpetuating and improving the human race for the whole meaning of the universe. That a scientific hope of defeating death is a real rival to Christianity. And then elsewhere he said, I was trying to redeem for genuinely imaginative purposes the the form popularly known in this country as science fiction, just as Hamlet redeemed the popular revenge play. That's a pretty interesting analogy. William Shakespeare in Pulp Fiction. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I remember a letter that he wrote to Sister Penelope after the release of *The Silent Planet*, and he said very few people noticed what he was doing. They had no idea that religion, theism, or that there was that there was a worldview behind all of this. He said very few people noticed it, and he, and this is the this is the line where he says, "And then I realized that we could use romance as a means of sneaking past people's watchful dragons."
1: Yeah, you 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 find the the whole. Oh, another book that he wrote right about this time. Uh, he wrote an introdu- not a book, an intro. He wrote an introduction to a new edition of Athanasius's
0: uh, book on the, on the
1: Incarnation. Yeah, and uh, one of the things there is that the whole, if you've read that book, the whole scheme of Christianity, cosmic from a cosmic point of view, is sort of pre- prevented, presented. It's sort of a God's eye view of what the whole coming of christ had been all about and in a strange kind of way it, it does read a little science fictiony it's just such a grand conception you know and i think it it partially uh, uh, may have influenced lewis to uh, stepping back and saying you know what does what does the christ event the coming of the second person of the trinity to earth in the form of man what what does that mean in light of the cosmos you know if there are other beings in the cosmos, how would they look at the drama? You know, And all of that, of course, makes its way into uh, out of the silent planet.
0: And I've often tentatively connected it to uh, G.K. Jeston's The Everlasting Man, because in Surprised by Joy, when Lewis talks about it, he said, this was the first time I saw the whole story of the world presented right, through right, a Christian right. lens that made sense.
1: Right. Chesterton begins with cavemen, begins with the discovery of the cave paintings in France. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. And Chesterton was providing that context within our world. And then really out of the silent planet is zooming back out even further to look at the cosmos as a whole, where you have Mars and Venus populated uh, and, and trying to draw an even larger narrative around the whole thing.
1: Yeah, it's very very interesting. and And if if you did all of that kind of work and didn't think of the kind of work that so imaginative work that science fiction writers have been engaged in for decades now, you'd be missing a big aspect of the issue. I mean, uh, uh, it's very common uh, as I travel around and when I get called to make talks at churches and things, uh, it's startling how often I meet what I call the geeky priest. <laughs> the, uh, the I actually had a group of priests tell me recently they would guess that, uh, that probably at least half and probably more like two-thirds of all Catholic priests ordained in the last 20 years uh, had some geek credentials.
0: <laughs> I would absolutely <laughs> so, agree with that.
1: Oh, so you've experienced it too then?
0: I think I'd completely concur with that because a few years ago – before I was married, uh, I went on a discernment weekend to the Eastern Seminary in Pittsburgh, and there were about thirty guys there in total, uh, all with beautiful beards, naturally. Uh, but <laughs> the topics of conversation were basically uh, scripture, Lord of the Rings, C.S. Lewis, uh, Star Wars. Uh, you know, it was all of the all of the geeky things and faith along at the same time. And we went and celebrated Vespers in the chapel. And no man considers that he might be called to be a Byzantine priest unless he can sing. It's just just one of those things because our entire (laughs) liturgy is sung. And so Vespers was beautiful. But as we were walking from the chapel back to the refectory so we could go and have dinner, I started humming far over the misty mountains uh, from because the Hobbit movie had, had just come out, and before we reached the the refectory uh, for dinner, it, it, there was this beautiful swell of uh, manly dwarvish voices singing this. So, I, <laughs> I, yeah, I I would absolutely say that. I, have, I it's oh, very man. rare I ever meet a priest who doesn't love the Lord of a scene the Rings. to imagine. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh goodness, yeah. Uh, from they, they, whenever I mention this to them, they say, "Well, it's just." There's a natural connection there. Both both things involve a cosmic imagination, mm-hmm. and uh, you know it's it's the the we're not saying that the tenets of our faith are only purely imagined, but we are saying that it takes an imagination to f- fully enter into them, a, a kind of a baptized imagination, and that uh, the the habit of using one's imagination in uh, pre-Christian endeavors might uh, blossom into this kind of sanctified imagination. Hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) Interesting. Well, anyway, let's see if I've got any hope of making my case within the allotted time. I had better press on. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Asimov says that uh, the golden age of science fiction magazines began in 1938 when John W. Campbell became the editor of Astounding Stories and remolded it and the whole field into something closer to his heart's desire. So we, this was the age of the great and ambitious uh, SF editors, uh, and they really began to turn these pulpy magazines into something a, a great deal more respectable. In his essay on stories, for instance, Lewis happens to speak highly of Robert A. Heinlein's uh, By His Bootstraps, a time travel short story that a- appeared in the October issue of Astounding. So I think we can assume that that, that Lewis had a familiarity with that magazine and uh, along with it, some of the great writers of the period. Here are some of the writers that uh, made their name writing for Astounding in the early 1940s. Theodore Sturgeon, Sprague de Camp, Clifford Simak, Isaac Asimov, Eric Frank Russell, Jack Williamson. So uh, these, I think, we can assume that Lewis had a familiarity with all of these, and as a result, his opinion of the genre uh, as a whole begins to improve, and uh, that's borne out in quotes from the 1940s. Still, before he began his work as an apologist, he be, he started writing his second science fiction book, Paralandra, um, and was uh, he started doing the writing shortly after completing his preface to Paradise Lost, which uh, obviously has an Adam and Eve component to it as well. Hmm. So uh, the way in which Lewis writes a, I've always, I always thought it was interesting the way in which he writes a uh, theological or uh, literary criticism book uh, uh, about a certain theme, and then. He takes the idea and goes to turn it into his own science fiction story. He took took Wells's uh, scientific philosophy and then wrote *Out of the Silent Planet*. He was steeped in the meaning of Adam and Eve while writing *Preface to Paradise Lost*. And then, as soon as he finished it, went off to write a uh, science fiction story about an Adam and Eve. So. In 1944, we've got a little scrap of a letter where he comments on the work of Charles A. Brady, who had made a study of Lewis's influences. Be nice to try to track that down. I don't, maybe somebody, some of our listeners know what that book or paper is. Maybe that still exists, Charles A. Brady. But uh, Brady uh, mentioned that he thought that Lewis had read Edgar Rice Burroughs or been strongly influenced by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Here's what he said in response to that. Space and time fiction, yes, but oddly enough, not Edgar Rice Burroughs. The real father of my planet books is David Lindsay's Voyage to Arcturus, which you will revel in if you don't know it. I had grown up on Wells' stories of that kind, and it was Lindsay who first gave me the idea that the fiction appeal could be combined with the supernatural appeal. So that's interesting. Charles Williams passed away on May fifteenth, 1945, and That Hideous Strength was published a few months later. Uh, so, so a guy I know refers to That Hideous Strength as the best Charles Williams book that Charles <laughs> Williams never wrote.
0: <laughs> yeah, I've heard very similar things. And yeah, it, it definitely definitely takes a turn that the two previous books, there is there is a notably different quality to it.
1: He was in love with his friend and he was grieving for his friend. So it, it, it seems natural enough to me that uh, that it might have taken that form. Uh, I don't say it's my favorite of the three, but, uh, yeah. You know. Yeah. So at any rate, uh, let's see. Uh, then in 1946 in the preface to the great divorce, which may be my single favorite C.S. Lewis book.
0: That is the correct answer. The- <laughs> we have a battle on oh, this podcast great. between myself and Matt <laughs> and Andrew. We are definitely team great divorce. Uh, so. Bravo for well, all of you your correct put, choices. You can
1: recruit me. You can recruit me. You can <laughs> you can wave my dubious name around.
0: I am actually rather um, tempted to produce a set of T-shirts like, you know, Team Vale <laughs> and Team Bus. Uh, it's just suitably really obscure so that if anybody uh, knows the reference, they'll chuckle. That's right.
1: Uh, here's uh, a brief little quote from the preface to A Great Divorce. He says, firstly, I must acknowledge my debt to a writer whose name I have forgotten. And whom I read several years ago in a highly colored American magazine of what they call scientific fiction once again he's using that already antique uh uh terminology from twenty years earlier uh but it's interesting he igno- he's uh he is acknowledging his debt to the uh to a science fiction story um I don't have it in front of me now because I have I uncovered the fact later. He's talking about the fact that when the uh, passengers in the bus first get to the uh, upper lands, or I don't know what the correct term is for them, but they find that they are unable to interfere with the world. That when he walks on grass, it feels like sharp uh, needle points, you know, and that the fact that they are so thin and and uh, non spiritual beings that they're not able to interact in this world in a meaningful way. He got from a uh f- from a short story in a science fiction magazine, but he doesn't give the name of it in uh, in the introduction. He uh uh he credits that there it was used for time travel, the idea that that visitors from the past or the future wouldn't be able to interact with another time. Uh, but he doesn't give the name of the story, and I have found that since that time, intrepid researchers have uncovered the name, but I can't remember the name of the author, unfortunately. I don't have it written in front of me. The name of the story is Goliath, and it came out in a 1940s issue of Astounding. So that probably wouldn't be too difficult to dig up if Goliath is the name of the story. So that's a pretty clear, uh, that's an out-and-out proof that Lewis read the Astounding Science Fiction. So... Roger Lancelin Green also reports from the late 1940s. We sat talking until about 12.30, usual sort of subjects, children's books, romances of other worlds. I discoursed upon Edgar Rice Burroughs, and we planned the story together of a trip to Mercury. Couldn't get very far with it. So <laughs> so Roger Lancelin Green, definitely his, his connection, his point of contact with Lewis was uh, in this sort of... Uh, uh, disreputable fiction. So, <laughs>
0: <laughs> And it does make you wonder if there was a quadrilogy possibly in the works at some point.
1: It's interesting, isn't it? Let's see, most of you probably have... Oh, he's a, he gives a nice mention of Ray Bradbury in one of his comments of uh, about Voyage to Arcturus. He's saying, he says, it is better than any of Stapledon's. It hasn't got Ray Bradbury's delicacy, but then it has ten times his emotional power and far more mythopoeia an absolute corker. <laughs> this was a letter to Joy Davidman by the way. Mm. But we get a nice Ray Bradbury uh, hat tip in there, so that's uh, that's pretty good. Uh now this is interesting. This shows that he's aware of the movement and the changes in it. I'd read he gave this in a talk at Cambridge to a a club uh literature club I assume and then the the uh talk has been published as on science fiction. I had read fantastic fiction of all sorts ever since I could read, including, of course, the particular kind which Wells practiced in his Time Machine, First Men in the Moon, and others. Then, some 15 or 20 years ago, which means 1935 to 1940, I became aware of a bulge in the production of such stories. In America, whole magazines began to be exclusively devoted to them. The execution was usually detestable. The conceptions, sometimes worthy of better treatment. About this time, the name fiction" soon altered to science fiction, began to be common. Then, perhaps five or six years ago, which means 1949 or 1950, the bulge still continuing and even increasing, there was an improvement. Not that very bad stories ceased to be the majority, but that the good ones became better and more numerous. It was after this that the genre began to attract the attention, always, always, I think, contemptuous of the literary weekies, weeklies. There seems, in fact, to be a double paradox in its history. It began to be popular when it least deserved popularity, <laughs> and to excite critical contempt as soon as it had ceased to be wholly contemptible. <laughs> so
0: <laughs> That's a very Lewisian description. <laughs>
1: indeed, indeed. Uh, there's a great deal more of this. But he talks about uh, very familiar with. Uh, it seems to me the whole uh, the whole thing. Uh, uh, really, uh, uh, these comments all reflect. It seems to me a wide and long standing exposure to the whole field. Only he was only brave enough to reveal that long standing familiarity here in the fifties when he was already very successful. At one point he writes, some of the most serious satire of our age appears in science fiction. What is called serious literature now, Dylan Thomas and Ezra Pound and all that is really the most frivolous. Uh, He speaks about, uh, at one point he says, far the best of the American magazines bears the significant title fantasy and science fiction. And that is true, it became the the classiest of the SF magazines in in the middle 50s. And it's significant that Ray Bradbury appealed, uh, appeared there pretty often, and then Lewis himself appeared in uh, in fantasy and science fiction. Uh, he, his story "Ministering Angels" appeared in night, in January '58, and his story "The Shoddy Lands" in February '56. That same issue, by the way, where the where Saudi Lands appears, also includes stories by Frederick Pohl, Damon Knight, James Blish, and Isaac Asimov. So. I felt like by this point I had proved my case pretty conclusively. <laughs> Lewis himself was a pulp writer. Mm. so. <laughs> um, but as a kind of a coda, let me say this. Uh, his late judgment, the few years before his death, he wrote this in 1961, probably the great work in science fiction is still to come. Feudal books about the next world came before Dante. Fanny Burnley before Jane Austen. Marlowe came before Shakespeare. If only the modern highbrow critics can be induced to take it seriously.
0: So he saw each of the great works of that particular genre was preceded by somebody else who sort of started carving out that area in like a John the Baptist type figure in preparation for the really great thing to come.
1: That that may be a, may be a good analogy uh, that, uh, you know, It it takes a while to work up to a literary genius, and just literary, um, some hacks, but also people short of genius do a lot of the legwork before the genius comes along, you know? Hmm. So, well, uh, to sum up here, let me read what I think is a really important quote from Lewis. He gave a really central role to his imaginative life uh, when he spoke to the Milton Society in America in 1954. Uh, He never traveled to America, so I I haven't written here how he did this speaking. I guess it was a letter or a paper that he had read there. At any rate, uh, there's a guiding thread in the list of my books. The imaginative man in me is older, more continuously operative, and in that sense, more basic than either the religious writer or the critic. It was he who made my, made my first attempt, with little success, to be a poet. It was he who, in response to the poetry of others, made me a critic, and in defense of that response, sometimes a critical controversialist. It was he who, after my conversion, led me to embody my religious belief in symbolical or mythopaic forms, ranging from screw tape to a kind of theologized science fiction. And it was, of course, he who has brought me in the last few years to write the series of Narnian stories for children. Not asking what children want and then endeavoring to adapt myself. This was not needed. But because the fairy tale was the best genre fitted for what I wanted, excuse me, was the best genre fitted for what I wanted to say. So uh, that's him, that's Lewis saying before the theologian, before the literary man, there was the uh, there was the imaginative guy, the guy that uh, cut his teeth on War of the Worlds and the rest of it. So that I think is uh, is pretty good testimony. Um, Clyde S. Kilby, a name that most of your listeners probably be familiar with, he had this little quote, and I think I'll tack this on as well. Now, the great, and I think all but essential, unique essential in C.S. Lewis's makeup, was a remarkable combination of two qualities normally supposed to be opposites. I mean, on the one hand, the deep and vivid imagination, and on the other hand, a profoundly analytical mind. Even more remarkable, it was not that these qualities lay in him side by side and disconnected, but that by some good alchemy, they were organically joined. And that may be the essence to what I love about C S Lewis, that organic uh joining. Even when he's writing pure theology, he's writing uh uh, you know, cosmic uh fantasy in some ways in my mind. It has the same appeal as a really great uh science fictional or uh, uh or fantasy conception. So uh that uh that that's really central to me again, because so uh I mean I in a way I owe my conversion to the fact that uh, C.S. Lewis was this type of Christian. Mm. I probably would have never picked him up otherwise.
0: Yeah, in everything he writes, he's always trying to engage the imagination. As you say, even when he's writing pure theology, he's still trying to give you a picture, a feel, a, a step into that world to, to be able to see it more clearly rather than just giving you, you know, a dry formula or dry prose.
1: That's right. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's, that's what
0: I love. Well, that's a wonderful place to wrap that up. Thank you for introducing us to the the world of Pulp Fiction and, and sci-fi <laughs> and the, the the background against which Lewis wrote many of the books with which our listeners are familiar. Uh, but I didn't want to wrap up the interview before giving you an opportunity to talk about some of your other very excellent books, many of which oh. I've read and some of which I have mentioned I tried to uh, – uh, Make my own by doing the audiobook uh, so yes. <laughs> would you would you mind just telling us about some of the some of the other books that you've written
1: well I, my speciality is the Early Church Fathers. Uh, my first book was on that subject and I made a bit of a splash and that seems to be the main thing people want to hear from me uh, as I continue to write so uh, i uh, uh, I have written uh, other books on a similar note uh, The apostasy that wasn't is about what the early fathers and the records have to say about uh, the supposed great apostasy that happened when uh, Emperor Constantine came along and screwed everything up. (laughs) So that's a book that, uh, that attacks that particular conception. And uh, uh, I wrote another book called scripture wars, which is subtitled how Justin martyr saved the old Testament for Christians. Uh, I think this is probably one of my least popular books, but it's the one that got the most uh, research and the most uh, time and effort. It may be a little dense for the layman. But
0: But that, that one in particular, I think, is really needed because it is very easy for a Christian just to hang out in the New Testament, have no idea of the Old Testament background or even how to read it.
1: Do you mean to tell me that you've actually read Scripture Wars?
0: I read all of your books, sir. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I need to shake your hand. You're you're a rare breed. You're one of the few and the proud.
0: <laughs> I was on Trent Horn's podcast, uh, and we were talking about uh, what the Saints never said. Uh, and that book for him was his his quote-unquote, big failure, insofar as he says, people don't want to know that their favorite Mother Teresa quote or their favorite St. Francis of Assisi quote (laughs) isn't actually anything that either of these people said.
1: (laughs) How about that? I just like popping people's bubbles, so I'm okay with it. It's a way to make yourself disliked. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Uh, You you also wrote Chesterton's America. What was that about?
1: I did indeed. You know, that's a book that people, you know, there's like, there's a guy who has a copy of that on eBay or somewhere, and he wants $900 for it on the internet. And the reason, you can ask whatever you want on eBay. Uh, The reason that book is hard to get is that I myself withdrew it from publication, because I disagree with so much of what I wrote in that (laughs) <laughs> wow.
0: That's a bold that, that move. book.
1: Start, that book started a uh a new revived interest in American history for me.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's a it's a book where uh Cecil Chesterton, uh, Gilbert's uh brother, who died at the end of World War One, uh, wrote a book. I mean he was experiencing American hospitality uh from his sickness at the end of the war, and uh out of gratitude he decided to write a uh history of the United States and uh he did write a little history of the United States It was the last thing he did accomplish before his death. And so it meant a lot to, uh, his, his brother and, uh, Chesterton, I think, uh, comments a lot about that, uh, book. And I think it colored and influenced his understanding of America and, and American issues, which Chesterton, it turns out, was going to r- write quite a lot about over the next few years, made two trips to America, something mm-hmm. Lewis never did. Yep. And, uh, uh, at any rate uh it's a fascinating little book chesterton's responses to it gilbert chesterton's responses to it and and uh amplifications etc over the years and also other distributists political distributists found a lot to uh, be inspired by in that little book that it it really awakened in me uh, a new perspective and new desire to go back and examine american history through a chestertonian perspective but it led me a lot further than I realized. I just, I wrote, I edited the book Chesterton's America, probably 15, it might not be quite 15, 12 years ago. I've learned so much since then that my amplifications and my uh, footnotes and all the rest of it are are uh, not up to snuff now. Uh, and in fact, I, I would be, I would argue with myself if I tried to reissue a slightly amended version of that book, I'd be arguing with myself too much, so. I'd better to start completely over someplace else. But
0: well, we've been talking about science fiction today, so you have to tell us about uh, your science fiction book, The Christus Experiment.
1: Oh goodness! Well, yeah, that it, being a sci-fi fan has has been pretty clearly spelled out here. I had to write one, so uh, I wrote a book that uh, probably one of the reasons I've had so much trouble getting it published was the fact that the, there's no way to, to describe it without or give somebody the short version. Without making it sound corny, so that's probably <laughs> probably not, not the best subject to write. The idea is basically a, a multi-billionaire with a personal stake in uh, disproving the claims of Christ uh, sponsors a time travel experiment with the aim of making Jesus sit still for an interview. <laughs> By the Jesus <laughs> Seminar, people. It's funny you say deal. that.
0: In the first scripture that pops into my head is from Job. Who is this that darkens my my counsel with these words? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um,
1: it, I am convinced, and I swear up and down in my own defense that my version of the idea is not ham-fisted. It doesn't come off like some sort of corny fundamentalist. Uh, so there, kind of apologetic, you know, in your face. In fact, all the characters in the story, because of the circumstances, all the characters in the story are unbelievers in one way or another. There is no real Christian in the story anywhere, and uh, as a result, uh, I'm writing from their point of view, and I think pretty sympathetically. Most of these characters are, are sympathetic characters, So, uh, uh, but there's no way to prove that to people until they actually read it and... Uh and which has proved difficult to, to persuade people to uh to read so uh but anyway i think it turned out pretty well
0: uh
1: i would like to write a revision of it and uh do a uh i've, I've learned a lot about time travel in the last few years too and uh, uh so i'd like to go back and rewrite some of the scientific aspects of it all and do a do a fresh pass but since uh Again, since financially it hasn't been worth fooling with, uh, uh, I may never get around to that. So. But thank you for your <laughs> well, one interest. One book
0: that I know generated a lot of interest was your book, Bad Shepherds, which is a book I keep on recommending to people when I feel that they they look at the look at the church worldwide and just don't know what to do because it seems to be beset by problems and scandals and almost tempted to despair. And what I love about this book is it looks at the other points in church history where things have not looked good and seeing the way that God's hand moved in those periods.
1: Just to say the least, (laughs) to say the least. Yeah, I tell people that uh, uh, I won't say that the situation in the church right now is not the end of the world, because it might be. It's part of our theology as Catholics that, uh, you know, the return of Christ is imminent. In other words, he can come anytime he wants. He, he he's coming again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and it might be today. Okay, so I won't say that it's not the end of the world. But if it is the end of the world, it's not because mm-hmm. things have never been this bad before. Yeah. Because they have. And uh the uh the degree to which whole you know whole centuries of the the Christian faith worldwide have been, you know, calamitous. That, that you and I have not seen anything close to is, uh, is what prompt prompted the writing of the book. It sounds like when you tell people you've written a book about scandal in the church that you're doing doom and gloom and all the rest of it. But the idea here is to be encouraging to show that uh, that don't don't lose heart because uh, you know Christ himself choose, chose twelve <laughs> and one of them was a the devil. And, uh, uh, we probably got one twelfth of our people may, might, uh, fit, uh, a similar, <laughs> a similar description. But, uh, if so, you know, there's a reason. There are probably many reasons why Christ, uh, chose a devil to be one of the twelve. But I'm, I believe that one of the reasons is for us not to make the mistake of thinking that, uh, the church is mm-hmm. the society of the good guys. That we're on the society of the people who've got it together and that all those other people that are out there perishing in the dark are the great unwashed and all the rest of it. Uh, You know, the the wickedness is is amongst us, probably a twelfth of of you and I is uh, devilish. I'd like to think it's just a
0: twelve. Well, I was actually going to double down on your example uh, because I think it's in the ecclesiastical history that it's mentioned that one of the deacons that was chosen in Acts of the Apostles he was a founder of some great heretical cult. So <laughs> it always seems like there is a portion that's in deep trouble.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. It is true. And so that book is a book about uh, you know don't don't uh, don't lose heart. The uh, church has always been. Uh, well, Chesterton again. Chesterton said, uh, it was Chesterton who said, uh, yes, people always say Christianity is dying. Or whatever. he said, I'm not worried about that because Christianity has died many times and come back to life again because it has a God that knows the way back oh. from the grave. <laughs> so, uh, Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> pretty uh, good, you, huh?
0: Do you have anything else in the pipeline, book-wise?
1: Uh, I'm finishing a book right now called These Twelve, which is a book about the Twelve Apostles. Excellent. <laughs> yeah, Yeah, it sounds pretty simple, but it's it's proving difficult to say something interesting and original. So many other people have written on the same subject, but I think I've got a line or two.
0: <laughs> well, Rod, thanks so much for coming on Pints with Jack. Uh, where can listeners go to find out more about you and where can they go to pick up your various books?
1: Well, I would say uh, with the exception of... Uh, well, let's say this: apostasy that wasn't, and uh, and let's see. Well, just the apostasy that wasn't can be gotten from Catholic Answers. This is the best place to go. Go to the Catholic Answers website. Four Witnesses, the first book of mine, is uh, is also uh, is best gotten from Ignatius Press. So, go to Ignatius dot com for that one. The rest of them go to Amazon.com. dot com. That's be your best source on that. <laughs> Actually, I don't have a great personal promotional website. I did have one for a while, but I got too busy to update it. So, okay, like a, well, I'm pretty a pretty antiquated person, so I don't have a great don't have a great web presence.
0: So, just thanks fi- for asking. Find a decent carrier pigeon. That's what I'm hearing.
1: That's right. That's right. A man of the 20th century. <laughs>
0: Well, thanks again to Rod Bennett for coming on the show, and thanks to you all for listening and to all of our Patreon supporters, particularly our top tier supporters Dawn, Sterling, Shane, John, Kevin, Brian, Kay, Monique, Paul, Kimberly, Gillis, Gary, Stephen, Matt, Jeff, Kelly, Chris, John, James, Kate, and Rowdy. You can always find out more about us at our website, pintsforjack.com. You can send us messages, listen to past episodes, pick up some lovely merchandise, and please join us next time. When we'll be interviewing the musician David Radford from the band The Grey Havens. And we'll be going further up.
1: And further in.
0: Cheers. Cheers.